I'm not sure what it is about you today, Alex. You just kind of have a glow about you. This episode of Self-Hosted is brought to you by The Sun. Solar-powered podcasting. <laughs> that is awesome. Yeah, man. Wow. Yeah, and you got quite the solar setup, I mean, compared to the one that I have on my RV roof, which is um, a lot smaller. <laughs> you got a lot more roof to work I with. I don't have a need to drive it down the road, do I? So yeah, I've gone for an eight kilowatt solar system on my roof. That's great. And it, so it actually means like legitimately it's running everything. On a day like today in the middle of June, when the sun is beating down real hard all day, I can actually run both my AC units, all my servers, the fridges, the TVs, everything 100% on solar for about two hours. And I know something that's on your mind is like eventually putting some sort of battery solution in there. There's, of course, reasonable solutions, but if you could just Star Trek Q style, snap your fingers and have a battery solution materialize out of thin air, what would be your ideal setup? Uh, you know how I like to make stuff. I, I've, I've been watching videos of this guy called, I think, uh, is it Jerry Garcia or, or something like that on YouTube for years? And he builds his own batteries, power walls, out of old electric car batteries. Yeah, that's what I want to do. I just think that'd be the coolest thing in the world because cars need a very high peak voltage to accelerate the mass of the vehicle. Whereas a house is a much more constant, much less peaky load than that. So you can get away with old, air quotes, dead car batteries that are actually suitable for, for houses. I, you know what I didn't even appreciate earlier is that you had your air conditioning going. Yeah. Two units as well, because uh, I live in one of these uh, crazy big American houses that has a unit per per story. <laughs> <laughs> That's so cool, though. I mean, you're like not even hitting like the power grid to run air conditioning. That's That's awesome. Yeah. At one point today, the solar was reporting 6.4 kilowatts wow. uh, of power. So 6,400 watts, I suppose. I dream one day of of building a big big array. Just something even something around that size I think would be perfect for what what I have envisioned for the future. 24 panels, I think um Solar Edge is the company that I went with. Um yeah, and they've got an, an online monitoring platform which Home Assistant of course talks to and my there's a local Zigbee gateway that talks to the inverter uh, as well to provide that information. In fact, when they were installing it it was kind of funny the uh, the installer knocked on my door and said, "Hey, where's your where's your router?" And I'm like, hmm. <laughs> Is that your yank? <laughs> like, router. <laughs> Why do you want access to my to my router? And uh, he was like, oh, I've got this Zigbee box I want to plug in. And I'm like, why? And he, he told me about you know, everything it does. And I thought, oh, that's so cool. And I was like, what do you need? He goes, I just need an Ethernet port. I'm like, oh, oh, okay. I got you covered. <laughs> that's pretty great. So uh, now it's connected up and uh, it all talks back to the equipment over Zigbee. Wow, that's wild. That is, you know, we also learned recently that Zigbee is used on the Mars helicopter opportunity, or no, I'm sorry, Ingenuity. And that's how it talks back to the Mars rover is over Zigbee. Really? That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> so Zigbee's getting, it's getting used on Mars to communicate with the little drone helicopter. Well, that's pretty cool. I'll be interested to follow your journey to see how that setup evolves. And then eventually I can't wait to hear stories of you up there on the roof trying to clean those panels after some storm or oh, something. Oh, God. Yeah, you know it's coming. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I I have a confession to make before we get too far into the show. So first, I want to tell you about our friends at A Cloud Guru. This episode is brought to you by them. They are the leader in learning for the cloud for Linux and other modern tech skills. Hundreds of courses, thousands of hands-on labs. Get certified, get hired, get learning at a cloudguru.com. 
So while I was in Montana, I decided to be just, I guess, like extra challenging and give myself more stress during my trip. I decided to just to kind of throw a wrench at everything and do a episode of Coda Radio live on the road. Not that this is impossible, but when, you know, I've pre-recorded everything and I'm only doing one live show on the road, like I'm not really in the right headspace. I haven't really checked everything out. I didn't really think through it methodically like I would if it was a whole series of shows I'm going to produce. And one of the things I didn't really have dialed in before I left for Montana was remote desktop control. And it has to be remote desktop. It can't be SSH. I actually have to see the console because of the audio tools we use in our mixer. I have to see the console. And I I thought, well, you know what I'll do? I know I shouldn't do this, but I don't have time. I'm I'm going to throw TeamViewer on these machines. And when I'm in Montana, I'll pull up TeamViewer and I'll get everything working. And I'll get the stream up over TeamViewer. It'll be fine. And for about five minutes, it was. Um, I got re- I got remoted in. I realized, oh, this machine, you know, it's not running quite right. It needs to be rebooted. So I restarted the machine I was remoted into, which is fine, right? That's fine. It comes back up. And TeamViewer, it, it has like some detective code in there that detected that I was doing admin-like functions, remoting into a machine, rebooting, and then trying to reconnect to it after a few minutes. And it detected that I was doing these admin-like functions and then disabled my ability to connect for like 15 minutes. Now, that sucks because I'm an hour out from going live, and I want to get the stream up. I like to get the stream up about an hour before we start so people can start, you know, assembling. 15-minute timeout. Okay, so I go about and I do my other things. I set other stuff up. 15 minutes goes by, and I may be getting the time window wrong. This was a few weeks ago. But that 15 minutes goes by. I reconnect. Nope, sorry. Admin activity detected. You have to wait 15 minutes. Oh, man. So I keep going, setting up. Now I'm like a half hour. Actually, I let extra time go by just in case. And now I'm like, I'm I'm at the 40-minute mark. Show starts at the top of the next hour. So I'm like trying to get connected. I gave it extra time. I gave an extra like five, 10 minutes. I connect again. Nope. Admin detected. Can't connect. Now I'm starting to get panicked. Now I can't get on. Now I can't get on the internet. I can't get on this live stream. I can't get that going. You know, Mike doesn't know he's going to be connecting, expecting me to be there. The audience is starting to show up in the chat room asking where the stream's at. It's starting to get stressful. So, you know, I go into business mode. And I think to myself, look, you jackass, it's like $670 to just buy the commercial license and then you can get access to your machines and you can do your show. You're going to be traveling more this year. Just just pay the damn price. So I I think about it. I know I could self-host this. I know I shouldn't do this. But I, I want to get on the air. The show starts in just a few minutes. So I head over to TeamViewer's site. I get all logged in, make sure it's all my account stuff is correct. And I subscribe to the annual like $670 plan. Oh, that's a lot of greenbacks. Oh, it's, it hurts so bad. I mean, I've, I, I've paid more for other subscriptions, but this one in particular, because of how they got me into it, and because I needed, I needed to just do this once, you know, like the way they got me into this, but I knew, I, okay, if I, I, I might need to do it more, all right, I'll pay, I'll pay their license. Fine. It says instant activation right at the top of the website. So I think I'm going to be golden. Well, it was Labor Day. 
And the team viewer staff was off that day, Alex, and nobody was there to issue me my license. Wait, that's not automated. That's not instant either. And so the time comes, we're like five minutes. I still haven't gotten activated. In fact, it took till the next day until I got activated. I was so angry. But I figured out that if I did a new install on a new Linux box and connected from the first time from that machine to the other machine that I was getting blocked on, I could do it from that machine with the free account. And I got the stream up and running with like two minutes to spare. And I had to then like just let all of that fade and just focus on the show and and, and sit with the fact that I spent that nearly $700 and still didn't have the license. And I just had to sit with that while I did the show. <laughs> it was, and so I, in that moment, resigned myself to find a free self-hostable replacement for TeamViewer. I would not let this happen to me again. And I did some shopping. I found a couple of different options. I don't know. Have you looked in this area yourself before, a TeamViewer replacement? No, they've never actually got me with that uh, admin stuff detected. I used to use it quite a bit to help family members back in the day. But uh, lately, I don't know, technology's matured to the point where I don't often need to remote into their systems anymore so well and in a lot of cases something like wireguard with vnc would do mostly what you need in in a lot of cases but in my case i sometimes am behind a double nat i need to be able to traverse that i need to do it from a mobile device i need to be able to do it from a linux box a, Win- a mac box you know anything like that yeah that's where team is really nice it just it just punches through everything so if you've never used it before it's pretty slick actually you type in a like a nine digit code which identifies the other person's server. And then they give you a five or six character password that you type in. And uh, yeah, that's how you do it. You just connect like that. It punches through every firewall, inbound, outbound, whatever, bounces off their servers and just works. And it makes those remote support situations so much more streamlined with that code. And uh, it's simple. I tried a few things and Rust Desk came across my... I don't know, maybe it was an email, but it came across my path. And uh, if if you did send it to the show, thank you, because I eventually did get a chance to try it out. And I really, really like Rust Desk. As the name implies, it is built. It is built in Rust. The client, the front end is open source. They they have one for basically every major OS, including your Linuxes out there. The front-end client is really clean and simple. It's a lot like a simplified front-end for TeamViewer. It runs as a back-end service on Linux, so you don't even necessarily have to have, have it up and running on your screen. It'll install itself as a service. There is a server component. Now, by default, you can use their server. You can use their their server. I think there's really no restrictions on it. I was able to connect to three machines simultaneously using their free server. They do say, though, right on their front page, our server resources are limited, so please set up your own server. And that's where this gets a little tricky. You can pay $200 a year, which is a lot less than $700, for their server which is all set up and and nice and lets you do all kinds of connections and you can run it on your own box for a year. But, you know, $200 is a lot for some people. So they've also made a demo server available is what they call it. Now, this demo server is significantly limited. Only one relay connection allowed, no NAT traversal. You really kind of have to be prepared for like a very limited experience, but it's a demo server that's quote unquote free. It's open source. 
You could run it on your machine right now. They make a Docker container available for it. But because it's open source, the community could, in theory, take their spec implementation and build a more feature-complete, self-hostable Rust Desk server. And I think if Rust Desk continues to take off and really makes itself a, an appealing alternative to TeamViewer, I could really see the community stepping up and taking the spec implementation that they make available for free and building it into something else. So I'm kind of going all in. I loaded it on all the machines that I would need to be able to remote support in the studio. How's the performance? A lot of these things, you mentioned VNC a few minutes ago. I just have memories of that thing leave just not working very well or not updating the cursor unless something's moving elsewhere on the screen. How's this work? Oh yeah, so many old cursor problems with VNC. And are watching like the 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 screen paint <coughs> as it as yep. you wait. Yeah. Oh. No, it's good. It's great. In fact, I'd say it is absolutely comparable with Team Viewer's performance. I didn't get a chance to dig in under the hood to see what they're using. If if they're using VNC, it is absolutely by far the fastest, bestest, most incredible implementation of VNC I've ever seen. I'd suspect it must be something else, though, because the performance is great. There's no mouse ghosting. Um, and uh, I was absolutely happy, even while having three connections going simultaneously. Well, that's the beauty of it being uh, open source, right? We can go and have a look if we want. You can. We could go dig around in it. In fact, if the community has another one that they like, I know there's a few out there that kind of are trying to solve this problem. Let us know selfhosted.show slash contact. Now, just looking through the source code, I'm in there, there's a file in the source called windows.cc and it mentions ultra VNC has RDP support. Do you need to use a, a normal VNC client for this or do they provide everything that you need? Yep, they bring you install the client on your OS and you can set up a session ID. You plug it in there and it connects. Once you connect once, it saves it in a recent sessions area. So you can just double click to reconnect to the machine again. Then once you're in there, you get a viewer that lets you scale the screen image or set it to the actual resolution. And it has a little bar along the top that lets you switch between multiple monitors if you're remoting into a system that has multiple screens. And it also gives you a few other quick options that you might want, like send a few keystrokes and, and stuff like that. And the UI, when you launch it, the remote, either to connect to someone or if you want to allow an inbound connection, it's just that one UI. And it gives you your ID and you set a password right there. Very cool. Yeah, that looks like a great project. One caveat, though, Unfortunately, at this time, does not support Wayland on oh, Linux. Oh God. So, why is there always a gotcha like this? Well, it's the nature of the Linux desktop right now. Uh, but thankfully, all of our studio systems. TeamViewer works on Wayland. Yes, it does. It does. And I'm actually, that is one thing I have to give TeamViewer credit for. And why I went with it is even though it gets a lot of hate uh, in the technical community legitimately they have been supporting a Linux release now for a very long time and they are, they support Wayland, they support Gnome shell plasma. Their integration is top notch and I got to give them credit for it. Like they've built a good product. That's why I was willing to pay for it. It's just the way that went about the, the delay in it. And then the fact that I have to pay that every single year, it's just not my bag. And I always prefer to self host if I can. And now I just have to decide, do I want the spec server or do I want to pay for the rust desk server? I got to make that decision, but I'll play with it some more and decide in the future. All right. Very good. Now, moving on. Have you seen this website, shucks.top? No, I've never heard of this. Uh, what is this? Somebody put it in the uh, Discord, of course. And this website lists you all the different drives that are suitable to be shucked. You know how I like shucking drives. I do. 
And uh, normally it's a dashboard of which retailer has which shuckable drive on sale. But right now, thanks to crypto and this annoying new Chia coin thing that uh, you can mine coins on hard drives, apparently, uh, hard drives, just like everything else now, are in short supply. You got to be kidding me, really? Yeah. No, I want storage prices to be going down right now because I have a I have a big plan to buy a lot of disk around November. Dang it. So uh you know, yeah, you're a big shucker for those of you who don't know the term. <laughs> you get a USB enclosure hard drive and you shuck that enclosure and you get the disk out of it. You know, it's like a coconut. You get you get the husk off and you pull out the coconut. And uh, sometimes it's delicious and sometimes it's uh not so good. Well, sometimes it isn't so good. Actually, this week, I, uh, I've i had two hard drives sail on me this week, both shucked Seagates. Oh, no, man. I've got a bunch of uh, older Western digital drives that are approaching three years old. And so what I wanted to start doing was buying a disc every quarter, give or take, to start kind of staggering their dates so that the bathtub curve, um, I don't fall victim to that, which is, you know, if every if, if everything's the same age with the same environmental life conditions, the chances that they're going to fail all at the same time is reasonably high. So I wanted to try and protect myself from that a little bit. Um, and so I bought a couple of these Seagate drives earlier in the year. I think I talked about it on the show. And both of these Seagate 10 terabyte, uh, what are they, Barracuda Pros, have both just decided this week at exactly the same time despite my burn-in tests and everything else, that uh, this week was the week they were going to give up the ghost. Oh, man, I'm so sorry to hear that. Uh, nobody ever wants to deal with that. Any data loss happen? No, no data loss. One of the drives was being used in ZFS, and the other one was on MergerFS. So Snapraid did its thing perfectly, and so did ZFS. So we're all good, baby. Now, I'm reluctant to even bring this up, to be honest with you, because the open-source community is well-known for over-egging the pudding when it comes to drama. But the more I dug into this story, the more I felt like it was worth a discussion on the show. So this week, Home Assistant developer Frank, uh, you've probably seen his name everywhere over Home Assistant. He is a prolific contributor to the project, uh, spelled F-R-E-N-C-K. He jumped into a NixOS GitHub pull request and made what seems on the face of it like a really simple request. He says, as the author of the package, I'm asking it to not be repackaged here. Sounds straightforward enough, right? I suppose. I mean, it's it's MIT licensed, so he doesn't really have the authority to make that request. Well, that's just it, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, there's the spirit of the developer's intention, um, and then there's the letter of the law, which says that NixOS, which is a Linux distribution that's very technical, very niche, and very awesome if you're into declared systems that are kind of just super, super niche. NixOS is great, but um, it is a Linux distribution just like Ubuntu or Debian. They package these things up into their own repos. Well, here's the thing as well, right, is, is that NixOS is all about reproducible builds. But for some reason, Fedora felt the need to package this Ambi Python library as well. And as as the thread transpired on GitHub, uh, Frank started to get a little more petulant, dare I say, as time went by. You know, he started off by saying, I have no emotional investment, no, no emotional attachment to this issue. And then a few posts later, th- this is uh, 
this, by the way, has moved out of GitHub onto the Home Assistant forum by this point. He goes from saying, I've got no emotional attachment to saying, sorry to hear you don't respect requests from authors who wrote the source you rely on, the author that has put in the effort to create it in the first place. Always good to know a project doesn't care. I mean, come on. In my opinion, I would characterize a lot of his responses as short and somewhat hostile and snippy. Uh, people ask him like very they 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 come back with very reasonable counter suggestions and proposals that have been that are well thought out, and he responds with trite one sentence responses that are sort of demeaning. Yeah, one example of that is that said NixOS offered uh, we will set a config flag in the OS that reads except that this package is not supported by upstream developers and I will go to Nick's packages to report any issues equals true. (laughs) And Frank was still unhappy with that. So here's what I think here, Alex, because the core argument that Frank had was he was concerned this would lead to user support requests on, on him. Mm -hmm. He was concerned that people would install home assistant and all of these packages and dependencies on Nick's OS run into some problem with, with, with their setup at some point that led them to the Ambi library. And then from there, they would dissect the source code and the original author suss out his contact information or his GitHub and then file a issue support request or email with Frank after that process. Now, um, I've been in this for quite a while, and I could tell you, I'd bet you a good steak dinner that the totality of people that would do that over, say, like a five to 10 year period would probably be a handful, you know, under a dozen. Because let's be honest, Nix OS is an extremely niche Linux distribution. Then the ability to ascertain who the developer is, well, look, actually, the ability to ascertain what particular library is even causing you a problem is a niche skill set. The ability to ascertain which developer created that one library that's creating you a problem is also a niche skill set. So you get my point? Like it's his main concern was that he'd be getting support requests, when in reality, that just doesn't seem likely. That's not going to that's not going to result from this inclusion in NixOS. Which raises the question, you know, if you don't want your stuff to be used and packaged by other people like this. I mean, the whole point of open source licensing is that you're giving your code away. You still retain intellectual property over it. You still, air quotes, own it, but you don't own what people can do with it. And for me, that raises the question, why is he even publishing it as open source code in the first place if he doesn't want people to do this? Yeah, that's that's a good question. It's a tricky one, because if you think about the way in which Home Assistant itself is licensed, that uses the permissive Apache 2 license. Uh, and that doesn't really impose very many instri- restrictions at all on derivative works. If Home Assistant then includes any GPL licensed stuff, at that point, you then have a whole other can of worms about... Uh, what would what would happen next? And I think, for me, I get a little concerned when I see how Paulus, uh, who was on the show a couple of episodes ago, jumped into that Home Assistant thread. All of these links will be in the show notes, by the way. Uh, and basically just locked the thread, closed it, and then delisted it, like sweeping the whole thing under the rug. I think all of this is that behavior of shutting down the forms and not really wanting to engage in a conversation about it, um, trying to reduce the amount of heat that Frank is taking and Frank's response and being so concerned about additional support requests that he would go to those, you know, he would essentially get in that argument in that thread. I think all of these are symptomatic 
of what you and I have worried about the project for a long time, and that is that the core developers, who are some of, as you mentioned, the most important developers to the project, are beyond what we would consider burned out, and that they are on their very last nerve. And every time we see a public interaction, we witness what appears to be an individual who is so far at his end of his rope, he has no time to deal with people talking back to him. He has no time for the possibility that he might get additional emails. The idea that he might get more emails is is upsetting to him. And then you see Paulus going around and cleaning up the conversation in the forum. So that way it doesn't inundate Frank with all of this, you know, peanut gallery chatter about it. And just to try to get away from the issue as quickly as possible because he doesn't have time to deal with it and he wants to stay focused. And I don't really know what the solution here is because that just seems to be, even if it's not the case, even if this is just Chris's wild opinion, it's what the public sees every time. And the issue here is this made it out beyond just the home assistant community this time. It made it onto Hacker News and it had a very robust conversation over there. It was fired up on the forums like Alex did. It made it to Reddit. It was in our team Slack where we were discussing this back and forth. Like it made its rounds around the internet and it's not a good look. It looks like everybody's hot take is, well, they don't know what open source is. They don't understand how Linux distributions work. Don't they know it's MIT licensed? And it's clear they're smart guys. They know all of those things. There's something else going on here and we're just getting little glimpses of it. See, I think you have a different take. You worry that maybe one day these guys, because they don't appreciate and understand open source, are going to take their cake and their ball and they're going to go home and eat it. Does that make sense? And they're going to convert it to a commercial product and we're going to be sitting here going, well, wait, now what do we do? My concern is more the development team just totally burns out and leaves the project and abandons it and says, well, it's open source. You take care of it. I think both scenarios are probably equally likely at this point. Although perhaps going closed source I mean, we, we've got precedent for that with MB. We've we've seen other projects do that before. I do think Home Assistant is slightly uh, less likely to do that because just because of the sheer volume of open source contributions over the years. I think if there was any talk of Home Assistant itself going closed source, that would get forked in a heartbeat and, you know, Home Lover would come out of it instead or whatever you want to call it. Um and then Home Assistant just wouldn't be able to keep up with changes without that uh, open source support. So I, I don't think it's hugely likely, but I feel like, you know, all, all the moves and it's it's a difficult one because we talked to Paulus recently and he paints a very rosy picture about the future of the product. And it's a sustainable one as well. You know, Frank and Paulus and these guys are getting paid through Nebucasa, which oftentimes is a uh, a reason that these developers burn out is because it's a side hustle or a side project for these guys. It, it is their job, you know? So I do think we've come to expect a certain level of access to open source developers like this, because of the way we conduct all of our business in public. I'm sure if we went and looked in some internal, you know, company email thread at name big corp here, we'd see similar levels of emotional attachment and, petulance at times but the difference here is that it's it's out for the world to see and there is a bit of a, a spirit of cooperation in the open source community a lot of home assistant is built on top of a lot of other great code and so when somebody comes along and says yeah but don't use our open source code in your project it doesn't really sit well and it, it gets noticed mm -hmm. and i think to your point that you know they are they are full-time employees of nebucasa Money is only part of the solution. It, it is likely that Frank is, is such a talented developer and what he works on is so crucial to Home Assistant. 
I bet you there is just an unrelenting, never ending amount of work for him to take on. And, you know, he did some work with the new ESP home release that we'll talk about. And he did. Yeah. Yeah. He's done. He's, he's involved in, in more things than ever now. And I think there is only so much that maybe one developer can take on. And when you're talented, like he is, you're going to get, you're going to get worked. And I don't know. If you've ever read The Phoenix Project, which is a book about DevOps, um, it talks about this concept of a halo engineer who people are afraid of uh, upsetting uh, or touching systems because this this one guy knows all of the different uh, incantations you have to say to make something work. I kind of feel like Frank's maneuvering into that position and the Home Assistant Project's very dependent on him because of his skills. It's a difficult problem to solve, and it is not unique to Home Assistant that uh, you end up with this reliance on, on one talented guy. But uh, I don't know what the solution is either. Do we all stop collectively emailing Frank all at once? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> yeah, that, that might help. <laughs> uh, well, uh, why don't we just really quickly talk about ESP Home? It's, it's, it's now part of Home Assistant, so they're kind of related. Uh, and for those of you who don't recall, those those little ESP, uh, what is it, 8266? And the ESP32? Yeah, there's a couple of them. They're made out of China. There's a company there called Espressif, and they make ESP8266 and ESP32 devices. Little Arduino-compatible single-board systems that have a Wi-Fi chip in them. You can use them for for all kinds of things, like sensors or controllers, um, little MQTT devices. And uh, now it's sort of a perfect fit, as you can imagine, with Home Assistant, because that's a lot of... That's a lot of things you'd want to do with a Home Assistant installation. And so they've rolled out version 1.19.0. And I think the biggest thing in here is they've added a feature that's very similar to commercial smart plugs, where you you can give it your Wi-Fi information over Bluetooth LE and give it the Wi-Fi credentials. That's a huge feature. That's slick. Yeah, I remember Paul was telling us about that uh, a couple of weeks ago. It's nice to see it actually land in a release. Now, another improvement they've made is that they've been uh, working hard on some new tooling to make it easier for everyone to install ESP Home and other firmwares on their devices. And to do that, they've created something called ESP Web Tools, linked in the show notes. Yeah, that's um, nice to see and going to make it even simpler for people to approach. But don't worry, they're also improving the command line experience. So both got some love, which is great to see. Uh, And then the other thing that I think puts this into now I'm very much going to consider devices based on this is, and this is something I've been waiting for desperately. They're going to add attributes from home assistant. Now that you're going to be able to save them into the local sensor on ESP home. So for example, uh, the brightness of a light. So when the light turns on, it resumes the original brightness or uh, the, the current temperature of a, for a climate device. So that way it doesn't have to keep checking in with home assistant all the time to be able to read attributes from home assistant entities right into the local sensor. I feel like is a game changing feature for them. It's just a bullet point in the new release. <laughs> and I'm like, yes, I'm so happy. I've got this like Jonah Hill kind of, I'm so happy GIF playing right now. Yes. All right. Exactly. <laughs> I think that's pretty great. So new ESP home makes me happy. Now in the spirit of embedded devices, Tasmota has a new release this week. They've just released 9.5.0. Now there is a breaking change in this release and lights using the MQTT discovery protocol will not work correctly in recent versions of Home Assistant. Uh, so upgrade to 9.5 and use the TAS motor integration to, to work around that problem. 
We want to thank our friends over at A Cloud Guru for sponsoring this year program and let you know about their hands-on with Podman containers on Linux course, which is free for the month of June. And of course, it'll still be available for members when you go over there. This course, you're going to learn what containers are, so you're going to get some basics there, but also then how to manage them and specifically how to manage them using Podman, how Podman interoperates with Kubernetes and SystemD, and of course, because it's the new way now, how to manage Podman using Cockpit, which is the web graphical interface that I actually think is pretty great, but uh, don't mention it to Alex. It, it upsets him. But you can go over there. We'll have a link in the show notes. <laughs> and uh, you can uh, check out Hands-On with Podman Containers on Linux for a Cloud Guru, which is free in June, but then, of course, will be available on the platform. Link in the show notes. Probably time we need some feedback, eh? Yeah, I think so. I feel like it. Corey wrote in. He wants to get social, but he wants to do it without social media. He says, hey, longtime listener and even long-timer self-hoster. I love the show. And he says, with uh, more and more things going online only, in-person interactions are getting to be more sparse. I found lately I need to put conscious effort into keeping up with friends and family, checking in from time to time, and or even taking notes about something they've mentioned to follow up on. Wow. You know what, Corey? I'm just realizing I should be doing that. (laughs) He says, Corey goes on to say, I was curious if anyone had a tech solution for this. Some sort of like contact management thing where you could make notes about a project or vacation they mentioned. So you could ask them about it later on or or even set reminders like, hey, self, you haven't talked to X in four weeks. Maybe check in on them or maybe some sort of reminder about their vacation and asking them how it went. Perhaps it sounds a bit dumb, but I think I could put it to use, especially after college or school when friends kind of go their own way. So is there something out there? What would you guys do? Thanks. Well, at first I thought the question was about social media and I kind of had a sinking feeling that uh, self-hosting your own social media kind of defeats the point of social media. And then as the question carried on, I sort of was listening and realized that actually what he's looking for is a basically a a customer relationship management system. And there is a really good one in this space, in the self-hosted space, called Monica, at monicahq.com. And this essentially lets you set reminders for all sorts of things, like the names of the children of all of your friends, uh, wedding anniversaries, the last time you called them and talked to, talked to them about the weather or whatever it might be. Monica lets you quickly and easily log all that information so you can be a better friend, family member, or spouse. (laughs) I kind of think this is a great idea, actually. Or I could see it, you know, for like keeping track of what you guys have going on, you know, for the JB team members. So that way I'm not like rude and just forgetting the important things that you guys have going on, (laughs) you know, like this could make me a better team member. Well, good news. They have an official Docker image over at Docker Hub. I might give it a look. If I remember after the show, I might give it a try. Yeah, essentially, it's a digital Rolodex. Yeah, I think that actually be pretty useful. Okay, so the HOM writes in, and this is about cooling Raspberry Pis in your famous RV server seat without cutting big holes in it. He's got a couple of suggestions about using water cooling, actually, to cool the air inside the box rather than the pies themselves. Hmm. Yeah, I had not even considered water cooling a Raspberry Pi before. That'd actually be a pretty cool project, wouldn't it? (laughs) So how would that work? If you think about it, you'd put a radiator inside the seat that would act as a heat sink. I suppose. Because the thing about water cooling rigs that I always, I mean, I've never done water cooling in my life. I've always wanted to, but it's always just been that notch more expensive than I'm willing to go. Yeah. 
uh, whenever I see like Linus Tech Tips or whoever mucking about with water cooling, they've got these big shiny copper heat sinks directly attached to the motherboard or whatever to the CPU. I, I just, how would you transfer the heat from the seat to the radiator? I guess is is the question. That is a good question. I think the way you'd have to do it is you'd have to get something that sits on the pie. So I'd have to get rid of my flirt cases that I like and get something that affixes to the like to the hot components on the pie. Affix it to the flirt cases because they are a heat sink themselves, right? Maybe. 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 You'd want you'd I'd also want a, like a plate that I could attach to a router. You know, you'd want a couple of different or maybe something for the switch. And then you'd you'd run water cooling through those plates into a radiator that I, I guess you could maybe put it in the booth, but I think for better cooling, you'd need the radiator outside the booth. Yep. Clearly this needs better, better planning, but I like where the home's going with this. I, it's an idea I actually had not considered and anything would be better than cutting a hole in the side of my RV. However, the pies are only part of the problem because the other situation I have is the electrical system with the Victron equipment and the batteries, when I'm running solar, and so I'm taking in a whole bunch of solar, which generates heat, surprisingly, <laughs> and then also running air conditioning. So I'm inverting solar power into air conditioning when it's really hot out. So like, say, above 95 degrees or 90-ish even, that just generates a lot of heat in itself. Then you combine that with when I've been driving, the drivetrain is very hot, which is behind the power bay. So it's a lot of ambient heat. And what I have to do to keep it running is I have to get airflow going through there. So I don't think I could water cool the Victron equipment. So it would only solve the Raspberry Pi problem, but definitely worth considering. I'm going to actually go do a little Googling tonight and see what I can find. Yeah, I mean, like maybe with hard drives, you you don't need a huge amount of airflow over them. You just need some. And maybe you could make that fan pull double duty of doing the water cooling, and also blowing air over the drivetrain and and battery bay. Well, Alex, I think you better come out here and uh, set a few weeks aside so we can start getting to work on this project. (laughs) Maybe, yeah. It's episode 50 before we know it. Yeah, maybe. That would be fun, wouldn't it? Hoo-wee! I don't know, though. I'm pretty nervous about it. Pretty nervous about cutting holes. I'll I'll come to some solution, and when I do, I'll share it. But in the meantime, let's talk about something that'd be simple, something maybe I won't have to mess too much with. Yeah, we've got an app pick for you all this week called Tiny Home. This is a simple static homepage generator. There's a link to it in the show notes, and if you head on over there, you'll see there's a link to an example demo site. And the demo site is just, it's so simple. It's just headings with a couple of buttons on it. You know, So if you want to put all of your different self-hosted web apps it's basically a collection of links you know like heimdall like homer like organizer all those kind of things except this is a statically generated super simple little website yeah and i think it just generates it from bash scripts or some kind of script so it's really easy for you to manage it and just spit out a static website that's pretty nice that's pretty nice yeah just generate a little csv file and the static generator will do the rest Gosh, that is easy. Uh, If you're still mulling over Google Photo alternatives, check out Alex on Linux Unplugged 409. He joined us to talk about some of his favorites and some of the ones we've covered on this show before, but uh, with a few updates. That's at linuxunplugged.com slash 409. And for all the places to get in touch with us, you can go to selfhosted.show slash contact. You can find Alex on the Twitter. He's at Ironic Badger. I am at Chris Elias. And this here show is at Self Hosted Show. Thanks to our site reliability engineers who keep the show going at selfhosted.show slash SRE. Stick around if you're a member for your exclusive post show.
And I have a bit of exciting news for those of you who are cloudfree.shop customers. There will be some new smart plugs coming in stock this week, version 2 with energy monitoring as well as all the existing Tasmota features. And uh, you can still use the coupon code self-hosted to get 10% off over there. And thanks for listening, everyone. That was selfhosted.show slash 47. Oh, Chris, I'm trying to resist the urge to buy an RV. Talk me out of it. Oh, you asked the wrong guy. It's my dream that you and I go on some sort of caravan one day, driving our RVs around doing podcasts. <laughs> You're <laughs> not going to get me fun. to talk you about it. Although now it's kind of a tricky time, i got to be honest. It's gotten wild with with the, the RV market since, since the COVID stuff. It's just... I don't even recognize it anymore. Yeah, I mean, I, I can understand it. You know, the, the desire to have a, a little bubble to go on holiday in is is quite tempting at the best of times. Yeah. And I also think for a lot of people, they're looking around thinking house prices are ridiculous right now. I'd rather I'd rather get something I can move around. I'll get myself a mobile data connection. I can work from home a few days a week or all the time. And a lot of the, that's all kind of coming together. And it's a lot of confluence of events that I think are just selling these things like crazy. So I would recommend to you right now, if you're going to get an RV, seriously, seriously, get a used one. Because if you went in today and got the price for a brand new RV and then went back a week and a half or a week later, it would be a higher price. Or yeah. I mean, it's just it's constantly fluctuating. And then because the RVs are back ordered, they don't guarantee that the final price will be what you actually bought it for. They can't guarantee that right now. They have some sort of like grace amount or something like that. So you may like you put an order in for an RV, you get the RV four to six months later, and it's actually slightly more expensive because in the meantime, the cost of components in the RV went up. <laughs> it's, a, it's a mess. I can well believe it. Yeah, we went to uh, CarMax the other day just to have a look around, and uh, they were offering us part exchange the same money as we paid for a Mazda CX-5 18 months ago, and now it's got uh, like 10,000 miles on it. They were offering us the same money we paid 18 months ago used for the car. We'd have made a profit on the lease. Yeah. I'll tell you one thing. You know, when you So here's a, here's a really quick rundown. Trailers are going to be the cheaper ones, and they're going to be probably the least complicated. Then you've got, you've got your different motored your motored ones, like your Class A's, which are the buses, your Class C's, which are based on a truck chassis. So you'll have kind of like a truck front end and then a motorhome back end. And then you got Class B's, which are vans. And the vans are pretty expensive and the Class A's are pretty expensive. The trailers and the Class C's are pretty reasonable. And my tip to you would be get one, if you can, used that was lived in full time. And I know that sounds gross and weird at first, but the reality is what people often do is they buy these RVs they use them three times a year and then sell them because they realize they weren't using them. And that seems, oh, man, it's great. Very little mileage. They hardly used it. It's going to be great. But the problem is when you don't use these things, stuff breaks. And when you're not compelled to use it frequently, you also just let stuff be broken for a while. Oh, yeah, that leak. Well, that's fine because we have it parked undercover. We'll get it fixed next time. Oh, yeah, that sink doesn't work or that sink leaks. Yeah, we'll get that fixed. But you know what? We're not going to be in it for six months. We'll let that sit. Oh, yeah, the water pump doesn't work. Yeah, that's fine. But a full timer, somebody who lives in their RV, when something breaks, they have to fix it immediately. And they'll often fix it with something that was better than the factory because you're sick and tired of this crap breaking. So you'll put a higher quality component in there because all this stuff is so modular. And so the full timers, they keep the rig in better shape because they have to because they're living in it. So if you can get a used RV that somebody lived in, even though the concept seems 
opposite, it actually ends up usually being a better rig. And so that's sort of my pro tip. I'll also look for leaks. <laughs> Don't get an RV that has water damage at all. <laughs> that's a hard no. <laughs> and you'll be fine. If you follow those, those rules, you'll be good. <laughs> so how's the actual experience of owning one? Because one of the concerns I have is not not being able to find anywhere interesting to park it without booking a year in advance. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Um, I don't think so. The reality of boondocking is so far detached from what you end up buying. Yeah, that's true. And then you end up having to spend tens of thousands on solar like you've done. And that's my worry. Well, so there's, there's two ways to look at that. There's the, there's, I look at it as a project. So, you know, you, we are RV. We've had it for like almost six years and it's been slowly building up over time. You know, we, we only added the solar like almost two years ago now or a year and a half ago. Uh, so that was a later development. We kind of built up as we kind of used it and realized what our kind of RV style was. We weren't sure. Were we going to want to be campground, you know, critters or were we going to want to be, you know, boondocking wild people? And um, we later decided that because the nice thing about boondocking is, which is what you call when you're just basically parked off grid, not hooked up to anything, not at a campground. Well, the nice thing about that is there's no scheduling, <laughs> you know, you just you, you just do it. You come and you go on your own schedule. And I like that a lot. Um the reality is, though, when I'm traveling hard, like say I was going to try to get to your house in just a, a, as few days as possible, every single night I'd probably be sleeping at a rest stop or a Walmart. And it's not glamorous, but because I can just roll up, get the rest that I need, and then get right back on the freeway, that's the great – the rest stop situation in the United States is one of the greatest gifts to our to our society. Like the, the – it's so wondrous. And if I can pull into a rest stop, I can get work done, I can rest, I can watch TV, I can make dinner, and then I can get right back on the road in 30 seconds and just keep driving. I love that efficiency. And I use my own crapper. You know, I don't have to go in and use some creepy public crapper. I use my own. And we're not talking about, you know, I'm, I'm used to British motorway service stations, which are, let's be polite about this, uh, greasy disgusting, horrible holes in the earth that you don't want to spend a second longer in than you have to. These rest stops over here, they have picnic benches and trees and landscaping. And yeah, yeah. They're really lovely. We do free coffee in Washington. And uh, also a lot of the ones in Washington have a free RV dump, which is great. You can get your water and you can dump your tanks. That's great. Yeah. It's really, it's really wonderful. And it's one of the things that I feel like is like one of the great things that we still get is the road. They're not always in the best shape, but just the ability to drive like that and the the fact that the currency is universal. You go through different cultures and different areas, but it's one universal currency. It's one universal type of fuel and gas, and they're all the same. And that language. Yeah, all of that makes it so – it's just so appealing to me. And that's what the RV gets you. And then how you end up using it, if you stay in a campground or a, or a Walmart or, a, or a, out in the woods – you know, that that can just be – that would probably change over time. Like one of the advantages I didn't really think about when I got into this was we sometimes stay at campgrounds because there's other kids at campgrounds. And our kids get to go play and they just – they play their little butts off while, while they're at campgrounds. <laughs> you know, uh, if I hadn't just had a kid, I didn't have a five-month-old in the house, with this real estate market at the moment, I would spend – I would sell my house, you know, for 50, 60 K over asking and make a nice little profit uh, in the space of a year and then go and live in my RV for a couple of years until the market crashes and then buy back in again. 
There you go. The only, only problem is in the meantime, you need a spot for all your goodies, you know, <laughs> all your tools and <laughs> just one big storage unit. Just cram it all in. There. <laughs> Details, Chris. Details.